Have you ever been confronted with an ominous reminder? Something that stands before you and uh, maybe even provides you with a bit of uh, fear and trepidation. Ominous reminders are, are everywhere. Uh, this past summer, my wife Rhonda and I were in Pennsylvania and we decided that we were going to go across the state from west to east and on our way we decided to stop by at the memorial that was erected in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. It's the uh, 9-11 memorial. Uh, that's when the uh, American Flight 93 was hijacked and it was on its way to Washington, D.C. when the occupants of the plane rushed forward and diverted the plane from an even more horrible disaster. The plane went down and uh, creased the earth. It became an almost first burial of the people who were on that flight. And as Rhonda and I walked through that memorial, I was taken by the ominous sense of the words written on the walls, the buildings that stood tall. And as we made our way through that place, I wept. I sensed a, a healthy, a healthy fear, healthy sense of ominous urgency. But there are other occasions uh, that come into our lives that push us towards this sense of ominous reality. Uh, a personal one is one that I experienced today, the 1st of September, 29 years ago today, my father died. I can remember the telephone call, that haunting call that I received when I was living in Massachusetts. I recall the, the hurried, almost forgetful drive from Massachusetts down to, to Pennsylvania in the west part of the state. I, I remember the emptiness of the funeral, the uh, sense of what could have been. My father wasn't a Christian, he was an alcoholic. And I remember just five days before he died, I shared with him the gospel. I don't know if he came to faith or not between that Wednesday and that Sunday. But I am struck every 1st of September about the brevity of life, and the haunting sense of death. It's an ominous feeling. Then we have our text today. I, I don't know if, if you noticed, uh, but there is a sense of heaviness in this text. I wish I could put a smiley face on it or maybe some lipstick and some mascara, but uh, that's a hard thing for me to do because it stands out in the middle of this passage. I don't know if you, you got it or not, but uh, I want to read those 
verses again, John 9, 1 to 5. That's John 9, beginning with the verse numbered 1. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is a day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Did, did you get it? Did, did you hear it? Did you sense it? Because as we, as we look at this text, what we discover is that there is a, a towering truth in this text. It stands above us, and as we, we look into the text itself, we see Jesus' words that are haunting and ominous. Laird, in the midst of this healing of this blind man, blind from birth, there is this sense of uh, heaviness that appears in it. The scene takes place during the Feast of the Tabernacles. It's a time of recognizing that uh, as the autumn begins, the uh, lights begin to diminish, recognizing the coming of winter. And here Jesus is, is uh, confronted with a, a blind man. And uh, he... Uh, heals him. There's incredible hope in this text, but there's also a, a haunting reality that you see in it. Because in the, the middle of this, ribboned in this text, are the realities of what is to come. Jesus says, night is coming. That means that the end of all things will take place. Even the work of Jesus, that, that great work of Jesus will come to an end. The great work of his church will cease. The, the blind will be pulled down on the earth. A light switch will be turned off. And there'll be darkness. Night, Jesus says, is coming. Something about that that makes us shudder. There's something ominous about it. High here above this seminary building is the clock tower. Dr. Still referenced it earlier. And in this clock tower, you, you see it every time you, you come into the building or every time you exit the building, there it is, standing tall above this building. 
And you'll notice the words inscribed in the King James, I must say, the night cometh. It's not something difficult for us to discern, that is, translate to the present day. The night is coming. These heavy words were words that uh, the previous dean, Dr. Paul Powell, wanted to have inscribed on this tower. Uh, Dr. Powell was uh, the dean here for in, in 2002 when this building was dedicated 18 years ago. He was Mr. Texas Baptist. And he was one who, who really sensed the immensity, in a sense, agreeing with the ominous reality of this text. He said, this word from our Lord reminds us of the urgency of acting on God's time. He, he, he recognized that night is coming, and it is an urgent message that helps people to recognize their task, what they're called to be, what they're called to do. This acknowledgement once again reminds us that this earth will be wrapped in a shroud. The uh, dark shadows of what was will now overtake that which is. Night. Night is coming. Now, the formulas that we see, the, the expressions that we are aware of as far as this uh, truth is concerned, uh, they're, they're easy for us to dismiss. We're familiar with the end of times writings that appear in books and in magazines. They, they uh, show up in uh, movies and uh, sermons. But if we were to dismiss this truth, we would be leaving out an important element of doctrine, of gospel reality. Uh, yes, it's easy for us to push it aside as seeing it coming from some wild eyes, end of times predicting prophet. But uh, what we are called to recognize is that this text, this truth, is one that has bearing on you and me. It stands above us. We could say that it is something that is a, a tall order. Yeah. What we see here is that uh, there is a truth that is in this text that we don't want to ignore. It's a haunting truth. But what we see as we explore it a little more is that it expands for us, at least in terms of its practical living out. It, it, it shows us that there is something more than recognizing that the night is coming. And, and what this text shows us is that we have limited time to preach, 
to teach and to do the work of the gospel. It's, it's limited time. Jesus himself, even in the midst of this text, is demonstrating for his listeners, the, the disciples, and for the uh, Pharisees, because the disciples thought this was a, a, a miracle that, uh, well, it, it had to do something with what he did. And Jesus said, this is not the case. It is here for me to glorify my Father. The Pharisees had... Uh, no conception of what was going on. They didn't recognize that Jesus is the light that brings light to the world and to this situation. In fact, the man's healing is almost a living parable of who Jesus is and what Jesus does. What Jesus says is that we must, as long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent as long as it is day. Jesus is saying that, that in light of the coming night, he is doing what he's doing then in view of that. And we, the same, are called to do what we are called to do in light of the coming night. As long as it is day, we are to do what he's called us to do. It's not something that uh, is uh, unrecognizable here. In the middle of the swirl of this text, you see this uh, incredible miracle, and yet a foreboding warning, an ominous warning, a sense of urgency. Dr. Gregory, in, in one of his sermons, says that we live life between the tick and the talk. It's true. We do. We live life between the tick and the talk. But what this text tells us is that, well, all clocks are going to be silenced. The hands will stop. And... Uh, Time will uh, cease, end, and be completed. But what Jesus is saying is, is while the clock is ticking, while the, 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 the time is day, we are called to reach people with gospel urgency. You see it in your own life, in the lives of men and women whom you know who are believers. Uh, there's this sense of, of reaching others with the gospel, the life, death, burial, resurrection, and promised return of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. And it is this gospel that they share with uh, their family members, friends, co-workers, people who are uh, in their cities and towns and regions and states and people who have gone across the world to share this gospel. I'm reminded of, of John Morant, a, a free black slave who was from New York, who, who went and worked with indigenous peoples here. He, he, he preached the gospel to the Cherokees and to the Creeks. I, I'm reminded of, of uh, uh, William Carey, that great statesman of the gospel, going 
to India to fulfill his call, along with Adoniram Judson, who thought he was going to India, but the Lord ended him up in uh, Burma. I, I think of um, people with this gospel urgency, like Lottie Moon, who, who went to China and spent decades there. For uh, Z.N. Morrill, who, who had a, a, a gospel reach, who was one of the first church planters here in Texas. I think of somebody like uh, uh, Paul Powell, who witnessed and worked for the gospel in the present age. Yeah. What we see here is that uh, this is a tall order. Uh, this text is, is, a, is a tall order for us to do what we've been called to do. So what is this pushing us to think about as we reflect on this text? What is it encouraging us to recognize? Well, bringing this all together, what we could say is this. The towering truth is this. We have limited time to preach, teach, and do the work of the gospel. You see this in scripture. You, you see it all throughout scripture. You see it bubbling up out of this text of the urgency of the gospel. But you see it from, from Acts until uh, the present day today. But you see it woven in the gospels. You, you see it taught in the epistles. You see it predicted in the revelation. That this is what all time, all eternity is about. This gospel urgency of, of bringing men and women and boys and girls to Jesus Christ. It, 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 is, it is what we're called to do and to be. Yeah. This gospel urgency is one that has an impact on our lives. Our individual lives, our lives as a seminary I, I can remember as a young pastor, there was a gentleman in our community, his name was E.C. Bailey. Uh, E.C. was known as the town drunk. Uh, he somehow befriended, he was a kind-hearted older gentleman, and he befriended a, a, a woman in my congregation who was homebound. She had disability, couldn't get out, and so he would visit her, get her food, and so forth, as well as the other congregational members. But he was, he was active in that. In fact, she had a big yellow Cadillac. He didn't have a car anymore, and I can only imagine why he didn't. And so he drove her car. Uh, there were certainly evidences of him driving her car. There were long gash marks on both sides of the car where it looked like he had run into another car or a telephone pole or a parking meter. Uh, one day, Pauly called me and asked me if I would go to the hospital because E.C. had fallen ill. So I uh, was pastoring in an Appalachian community. There were not many hospitals around. This one in which E.C. was being treated was about 30 miles away. So I got in my car and I drove up the winding road to visit EC. I walked into the room and his eyes were fixed upon me and they were filled with fear. Uh, he, he was uh, dying of, 
of heart failure, struggling to breathe. After uh, pleasantries, a conversation, I shared the scripture with him and then uh, asked him if I could pray with him, but I asked him before that if he would like to give himself to Jesus Christ, to ask him to uh, have Jesus Christ forgive him of his sins so that he could spend eternity with him. And as he struggled to breathe, he said, I'm too tired. Yeah, I, I don't know, I was a young pastor. <laughs> how, 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 how much do you push this? <laughs> you see a person who's in front of you who's dying. What do you do? So I, I, I said to him, well, you see, I will, um, I will come back and, uh, and see you, you uh, tomorrow. Oh, I prayed on my way home that, uh, that he would survive till t the next day. I went back the next morning following these old coal truck trucks that mined the coal from the region there, got to the hospital, and his eyes were aflame with fear. I stood beside his bed and, and read some scripture and, and uh, again, offered the opportunity for him to come to Christ to uh, be forgiven of his sin. And that day he was struggling so much in breathing that he was lifting his torso off of the bed. And again, he gasped, I'm too tired. I prayed with him, and I prayed on my way home again, Lord, Lord. I can tell you that the next day, I went to that hospital room, and he was fiercely afraid. I don't know if you've ever been with somebody who is struggling for their last breath, but E.C. was on that bed lifting his torso, and I could hear in his lungs the rattles of the struggle for breathing. And once again, I'm not the greatest evangelist in the world. I was a timid pastor, but I knew that God loved him and that he was on the edge of eternity, that the shadows of night for him were coming quickly. And I had limited time, as it is day, to speak to him. And I said, oh, you see, God loves you. I love you. Would you not please come to the faith in Christ? Trust him to forgive you of your sin. Will you do that today before you die? Because you know you're going to die. Please. He lifted his torso and said, yes. <laughs> and that night, E.C. Bailey, the town drunk of New Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, died a Christian. I, I did his funeral. It was the smallest funeral I've ever done. The undertaker, Polly, and me. The question for us is, do we have that gospel 
urgency because nothing, nothing, nothing replaces the light of the gospel. And we don't want to shrink from it. Nothing replaces the light of the gospel. So, so we, we want gospel urgency in, uh, that will inform our advocacy. We, we want gospel uh, urgency to shape the ministries that we have with refugees. We want gospel urgency to influence academic pursuits. We want gospel urgency to infiltrate justice. We want gospel urgency to characterize our lives. We want gospel urgency to, to shape our preaching and our teaching in the classroom, in seminary, and in the church. The towering truth is this. We have limited time to preach, teach, and do the work of the gospel. This truth towers over us individually and as a seminary. My question for you is, how are you doing with that? As students, as a seminary community, how are we engaging with this gospel urgency? What does it look like in our lives? Are there people whom we know, family, friends, co-workers, people with whom we come into contact who are in desperate need of the gospel? What are we doing about it? Are there people that uh, we know who uh, we can think of strategies about how to reach them for Christ? Because the day is short. The night is coming. I have a, an affinity with clocks. I, I like clocks. There's something about them. I, I, I have relatives. Well, I... My uh, Swiss relatives, the uh, Goodyears, they weren't related, I don't think, to the um, tire tycoons. Uh, my Goodyears were interested in round things, but clocks. <laughs> and uh, uh, my grandparents had clocks in their cozy, warm home. And after they died, my uncle gave me one of those clocks. I treasure it. But after having it fixed, didn't uh, work, and it was not working. And so this past summer, I took it to a clock repair shop and brought it home proudly. And I put it on the wall of my study in our condo in Pennsylvania. And that clock towers over me. It, 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 it looks at me. It's, it's a, a truth, in a way. It reminds me of my own heritage, my genealogical heritage, but it also reminds me in light of this text of my spiritual heritage because the clock is ticking. Where are we as individuals, as a seminary community, faculty, staff, students, administration, when it comes to the pressing nature of this text? Because uh, the towering truth is this, we have limited time to preach, teach, and do the work of the gospel. In a sermon on this text, Paul Powell spoke of the urgency of doing this great work because night comes. He's right. 
That tower reminds us. That tower reminds us of a truth that comes from this text. The towering truth is this. We have limited time to preach, teach, and do the work of the gospel. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, help us not to diminish the power and push of this text. It's easy for us to write it off. We can be complacent. We can uh, simply ignore it. But all scripture points to the reality that this world will end. Our lives will end. And so will the lives of those with whom we come into contact every day. Would you give us, by your spirit, a sense of gospel urgency that we might honor you and glorify you. For we love you and thank you. In Christ's name.